So the title of this morning's message is Another Great Escape. <laughs> this morning, I want to talk to you about three of the most amazing escapes in the Bible. The first one is in the Old Testament. The second one is in the New Testament. And the third was prophesied in the New Testament and fulfilled in AD 70. What I hope you come away with this morning is more confidence in God's ability to fulfill his promises in our lives. He is both willing and able to bring us into our very own land of promise. One of the things I want you to see this morning is that God didn't wave any magic wands, so to speak, in order to accomplish his will in the lives of his people. He did, of course, demonstrate supernatural power, but only after he communicated with his people and gave them instructions, after which his people believed his words, acted on those words, and then God's presence and power brought forth their great deliverances. In other words, his people had to cooperate with him. <laughs> A lot of times we want to rule and reign on earth without cooperating. <laughs> Grace is free, but it's not automatic. We have to appropriate it by faith. We have to believe and receive the very grace that he's provided. The people in the Old Testament, they had to believe what God said, and in the New Testament too, and then do what God said. When God told me to fast, he knew my heart needed to set aside extra time to believe that in the midst of an impossible situation, God would bring forth not only a great deliverance, but a great miracle. Only God can bring forth a baby in six weeks. <laughs> in fact, uh, that baby's name is Mila, which is a shortened form of the Spanish word for miracle, because that is exactly what she was. That's what she is. Even if one has doubts, and believe me, we had doubts when we were praying about Sarah being able to have her own child. Acting on what God said was the evidence that we believe. I could have thrown my hands up and said, God, you failed. That baby went home. You had promised her this child. God, you failed. But I knew his voice. And because he had given me an assignment to pray and fast and seek the Lord for a certain amount of days. When that first baby went home, the days were not ended. So I knew God was up to something. <laughs> because I was like, oh, I guess I must have misheard you, God. And he goes, no, you didn't mishear. You keep seeking me. You keep praying and fasting. I'm at work, and I need you to believe it. <laughs> that was a hard thing to tell my daughter, whose arms were empty. I don't know how. I don't know if he's coming back. I don't know what's going on exactly. But God says, don't give up. Don't give up. He's at work. And he definitely was. The first great deliverance I want you to see this morning is the deliverance or escape of the Israelites from Egypt. This story actually has more than one deliverance or escape, but the first one enables there to be a second one, or another one. The first deliverance or escape involves the blood of a lamb. Now, the Israelites went into Egypt when Joseph, the son of Jacob, was second in command to Pharaoh. And as long as Joseph lived and ruled in Egypt, which was about 80 years, the Israelites had great favor. 
But then there arose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph, nor the God of Joseph. And this Pharaoh was afraid of the strength of the multitude of Israelites and feared that they might try to take over. So he decided to put them into slavery and to make their lives bitter in an effort to subdue and control them. But God had promised Abraham and Joseph that he would bring the Israelites up out of Egypt and out of slavery within approximately 400 years. It turned out to be 430 years because Moses was a little slow. <laughs> but then they would escape their bondage and come out with many possessions. God also told Abraham that the nation that they were forced to serve would be judged for how they treated Israel. So when the time came for Israel to leave Egypt, God sent a reluctant Moses. I love that. <laughs> Sometimes, even if you're called to the prophetic, you can be a little reluctant. <laughs> God sent a reluctant Moses to be their deliverer. So Moses and his brother Aaron went to talk to the new Pharaoh and told him that the God of Israel, Yahweh, wanted Pharaoh to let his people go. To which Pharaoh replied, no way, Jose. <laughs> and so there then began the 10 plagues of persuasion. There were 10 plagues designed to convince Pharaoh that Yahweh really was the only true and living God and that he alone had power over all of Egypt's false gods, including Pharaoh himself. The last plague was the death of the firstborn. Pharaoh could have relented, but he was convinced of his own false deity. <laughs> he really didn't believe that this last plague would affect his own household. It would take the extremity of losing his firstborn son for Pharaoh to bow his knee to Yahweh, at least momentarily, and to allow all of Israel to leave. Before the last plague came upon Egypt, Moses was directed to tell the Israelites how God would deliver Israel from the last plague by the blood of a lamb. We see this in Exodus chapter 12, beginning with verse 3. I have it for you in the ESV version. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it onto the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. This is one of my favorite scriptures in this story because they unknowingly made a cross with the blood of their lamb. I love that. God loves to hide Jesus all over the, the Old Testament. You see, they had to take their little lamb into their house so they would fall in love with it. <laughs> they could really truly identify that their lamb was dying in their place. He made it real for them. And then what they did is they had a basin at the 
bottom of the door and they would take hyssop and they would dip it into the blood and they would put the blood over the doorposts, over the lintel, and then dip and then on the side and then dip and on the side. And they did this. They made a cross because God was going to see the bloody cross and judgment would go over them, would pass over. So we could say they may not have recognized it, but they were saved by a bloody cross, same as us. Verse 11 in the same chapter. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's, and L-O-R-D in caps is Yahweh. (laughs) I like to see his name because he meant for us to see his name. (laughs) It is Yahweh's Passover. In other words, they were to put feet to their faith. They were to expect a great escape, and they were to make themselves ready for it. This is what God did for me and my family, for me and my daughter. God said, you need to be ready for this miracle. I want you to pray and fast and seek me and hear my voice so you know what to expect. Verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. Again, the name is important because Egypt had about 2,000 gods with different names. So when you said the word God, they didn't know who you were talking about. (laughs) that was the point there is only one true and living God and his name is Yahweh so it doesn't matter what all the other names are there's only one true and living God who is above and over all now historians say that this particular Pharaoh actually believed himself to be a son of God his God the son of Ra so Pharaoh fully expected his God Ra which was the sun God to deliver his enemies into his hands not the other way around. (laughs) So when his God failed to save his firstborn son, it was perceived to be a judgment against his God and all the other lesser gods, because Ra was the big one, because Yahweh had proved himself to be greater. Verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you, to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Skipping down to verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive, who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, and he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. There was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up! Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve Yahweh as you have said. So Moses and all the people of Israel got up and basically got out of Dodge. All of Israel had escaped. All of Israel had escaped the angel of death. Not one single Israelite house had experienced the death of the firstborn. Yahweh God had truly passed over every house that had the blood of the lamb on and over the door. 
Yahweh honored the blood of the lamb and the faith of his people. So according to God's instructions, he says, when you get up and leave, this is what you're going to do. You're going to ask your neighbors for gold and silver and clothes. They're going to go from being slaves and poor to being very wealthy. So when they asked their neighbors for gold and silver and and clothes, their neighbors couldn't give them what they wanted fast enough. (laughs) They just wanted the Israelites to take their stuff and their God and leave as fast as possible. And so they did. They had experienced their first great escape because of their faith in the blood of a lamb and in their truly faithful covenant-keeping God. God, Yahweh, had shown himself to be God over all of life, God over all of death, and even God over Pharaoh, which Pharaoh did not like. Yahweh was truly the God of the great escape. But there was another great escape just seven days away. Yes, they got out of Egypt and then they were in the wilderness. (laughs) And then there was this big obstacle in their way called the Red Sea. (laughs) God had led them out of Egypt with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. God also used the clouds and the fire as a hedge of protection so that their enemies could not catch up with them. But their enemies still pursued them in an effort to bring them back into captivity and to make an example of them to other groups of slaves who might be thinking about leaving Egypt as well. But God didn't want to just remove the Israelites from their enemies. He wanted to remove their enemies from the Israelites. So God set Israel up so that they could witness the complete destruction of their enemies. God led Moses and the Israelites into the wilderness and right up to the Red Sea. Now, of course, (laughs) the people started complaining about being sitting ducks. (laughs) Why have you brought us out here to kill us? Why didn't you just leave us in Egypt? (laughs) We don't really need this, Moses. (laughs) They didn't understand that God had a plan that they couldn't see. Before we actually see the next verses, we're going to look at chapter 14, beginning with verse 13. But before we look at it, I want to explain about the Aleftah. The Aleftah is actually the first and last letters of the old Hebrew alphabet. When these two letters are put together, they do not make a word. They make a sign, an indicator. Jewish scholars of today will tell us that these little marks mean absolutely nothing. (laughs) They just indicate that it's pointing to a direct object in the sentence. Now that would be a perfectly fine explanation if it was used consistently throughout the whole Old Testament. But it's not. (laughs) And what's more is Jewish scholars of Jesus' day said that they were indicators that something special was to be seen within those scriptures that contained them. The Aleftav symbols themselves are recognized as picturing the head of an ox, meaning strength. And the Tav was actually originally an X or a cross. And it meant covenant. Together, they would signify the strength of the covenant. This is important to us to understand because the strength of the covenant is God's grace. (laughs) They were under Abraham's covenant. They were under a grant covenant. They were under grace and more grace. His absolutely free loving kindness. He was faithful to keep his word because that's who he is. And he's a God of great grace. 
absolutely free loving kindness, which is really good because those Israelites didn't deserve anything. <laughs> Just like us. <laughs> so because we need to understand these little indicators, it becomes very apparent that the fidelity of Yahweh was all important. It was the foundation on which would cause the Israelites to be able to have faith in their God. Why do we trust God? <laughs> Especially when you're at a Red Sea and it doesn't look like there's any way out. Why do we trust God then? Because we've seen him bring us through before. We have seen in the word that he's always faithful to his word. He's always faithful to his covenant people. His fidelity is what gives us confidence, which is what we call faith. At this point in the story, the Israelites are still under the grace covenant God began with Abraham. So everything still worked by grace through faith. They were to believe in the grace and power of Yahweh and then act in faith on what Yahweh told them to do. If they didn't cooperate with God, they wouldn't apprehend what God's grace would provide. They needed to trust him again. And he had just already proved to them a week before that he is the God of the great escape. How does God take a whole nation and move them out of Egypt? Millions of people. It's impossible. Unless you're Yahweh God. <laughs> now, we go back to the complaining Israelites. Chapter 14, beginning with verse 13. And Moses said unto the people, Fear ye not. Stand still and see. Now, what you see on the screen is H853, which is the strongest concordance number for in the left Tav. It's never translated, ever. We put the meaning in there. <laughs> it means because of the strength of the covenant of grace. Fear ye not. Why? Stand still. Why? Because we're going to see the strength of the covenant of grace. The salvation, which just happens to be the name Yeshua <laughs> of Yahweh, the salvation of Yahweh, which he will show you today for a left tav, because of the strength of the covenant of grace, the Egyptians who you have seen today, ye shall see them again no more forever. 14. The Lord Yahweh shall fight for you, and ye shall hold your peace. That was important. <laughs> because what were they talking? What were they speaking? Fear, doubt, unbelief. God said, shut up. <laughs> you don't understand that you were meant to be kings and priests, and you were supposed to rule and reign, and you were supposed to release your faith with your mouth. Stop talking faithlessness. Stop talking fear, doubt, and unbelief. Stop talking, oh, woe is me. So he said, shut up. <laughs> I'm going to do something great here. Shut up. <laughs> I'm going to fight for you. And you shall hold your peace. Verse 16. But lift thou up a left hove. He's talking to Moses. But lift thou up, because of the strength of the covenant of grace, thy rod. Remember his rod did all kinds of miracles, <laughs> all by grace, <laughs> and stretch out a left hob because of the strength of the covenant of grace, thine hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. Because Moses believes in the strength of the covenant of grace, let's face it, <laughs> 
Nobody can stand before God and say, I am perfect. I think you should accept me unless you're in Christ. They weren't in Christ, but they had the same kind of covenant, a covenant of grace where God says, I will accept you because of your faith, not because of your works. <laughs> so they had to depend on the strength of the covenant of God's grace. And it brought forth miracles. Because Moses believed in the strength of the covenant of grace, he does what he's told to do. And Israel experiences another great escape. <laughs> they miraculously pass through the Red Sea on dry ground, while the waters at each side of them stand at attention like obedient soldiers protecting the kids of the king. And all Israel arrives safe and sound on the other side of the sea, completely out of reach of their enemies. Then in verse 26, we see that Moses cooperates with God yet again in order to see the destruction of their enemy. What I like about this is God didn't do anything without somebody cooperating. <laughs> Moses had to step by step act on what God was saying to him. The whole nation was dependent on Moses knowing the voice of God and doing the voice of God. I love this. God doesn't just do everything for Moses. He says, you have to use your faith. You have to step out. You have to do what I tell you. Because when you step out in faith, you're accessing the strength of the covenant of grace. You're accessing the power and the love and the miracles that you need. Verse 26, and the Lord Yahweh said unto Moses, stretch out the left hoof because of the strength of the covenant of grace, thine hand over the sea, that the waters may come again upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. The power of God's grace was apprehended by acting in faith. Verse 30. Thus the Lord, Yahweh, saved Aleftov <laughs> because of the strength of the covenant of grace, Israel, that day, out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw Aleftov because of the strength of the covenant of grace, the Egyptians dead upon the seashore. So, just like God promised, they were completely free from their enemies and they would never see them again. Once again, God was faithful to bring forth another great escape. So here we see that the great escape came only to those covenant people who believed what Yahweh God said and then did what Yahweh God told them to do. Pharaoh and his men who opposed Yahweh God and his covenant people participated in bringing forth their own destruction because they just wouldn't let go of God's covenant people. Pharaoh couldn't stand there being a God greater than him. <laughs> so he decides he's going to put an end to them. Not smart. Pharaoh and his men were very much like monkeys in Africa. <laughs> How is that, you might ask? <laughs> well, in Africa, they catch monkeys in monkey traps where the monkey could easily get out of the trap if the monkey would just let go of what's in their hand. Farmers in Africa put a small hole either in a coconut or in a cage, just large enough for the monkey to get his hand through, but not large enough to allow a fist to be released. They just grab a banana, and because they won't let go of that banana, they are caught and usually destroyed. They are like squirrels. <laughs> they are a pest in these countries. And the way you catch them is by their own stubbornness and their need for food. 
Pharaoh was caught because of his own stubbornness and his own unhealthy desire to prove himself greater than Yahweh God. So Pharaoh and his men acted just like monkeys. <laughs> they participated in bringing about their own destruction because they just wouldn't let go. The second great escape that we're going to look at this morning is actually the greatest escape of all time. And within the story of the great escapes of Israel, we find the types and shadows of what our God and Father will one day bring forth through the one and only true Son of God, the Son of Yahweh himself, Jesus of Nazareth. John the Baptist bore record of both Jesus' sonship and his identity as our sacrificial lamb. In John chapter 1, beginning with verse 29. The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, behold the Lamb of Yahweh, which taketh away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore I am come baptizing with water. And John bare record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode on him, and I knew him not, in the natural that is, I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize, Yahweh God, the same said unto me, Upon whom you shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizeth in the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God, the Son of Yahweh, the only true and living God. Clearly, Jesus was both the Son of God and the Lamb of God. The Apostle Peter also bore witness to Jesus as the Lamb of God in 1 Peter, beginning with verse 18. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, from your vain conversation, the old vain way of life received by the tradition from your fathers, that's the old covenant. <laughs> vain, <laughs> worthless, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times. Hmm, what times? These last times for you, who by him do believe in God, that raised him from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. God, Yahweh, the one true and living God. What are the last times they were talking about? <laughs> Not the end of the world. The last times of the Old Covenant, the last times when the Holy Spirit was poured out on old flesh, and the last times when the prophesied destruction of the temple would take place, those were those last times. And the Apostle Paul bore witness to the fact that Jesus was our Passover lamb as well. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. The Apostle Paul's point in this verse is that because of the blood of Jesus, because of the blood of the Passover lamb, we are truly clean and acceptable to our Father. And because that is the truth about us, we can live the kind of life that doesn't have a corrupting or leavening influence on others. He points them back to their identity. And then, of course, all four Gospels bear witness to the fact that Jesus was crucified on Passover. So there is a lot of evidence that Jesus fulfills the types and shadows of the sacrificial lamb. 
Passover in Jesus' day was one of the greatest days of the year. Each year the Jews not only celebrated their past great escapes from Pharaoh and Egypt, they also anticipated that Yahweh God would bring forth another great escape through the Messiah. They expected their great deliverer to come and to rescue them from the harsh Roman government the same way they were rescued from the Egyptian government. They didn't realize that Yahweh God did have another great escape plan for them, but it was so much greater than they had anticipated. Their Yahweh God wanted them to be free from the incurable disease called sin that only brought forth death in their lives. He wanted to free them from the Pharaoh called Satan, the slanderer who constantly bombarded them with shame, guilt, fear, and condemnation. He also wanted to free them from the separation from himself and from their fellow man. He wanted his people to enjoy and partake of his presence, the eternal life and his everlasting love and power. What Yahweh God wanted for them was so much more than they had ever dreamed of. Yahweh God so loved Israel and all of humanity that God sent his only begotten son to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, which is to take sin into death and then rise from the dead with eternal life and ascend unto the Father. Through Christ and his bloody cross, we enjoy the greatest of escapes, the escape from the indwelling power of sin and death. Through the blood of our lamb, we have escaped the judgment for any and all of our sin. Through the cross of Christ, we see the strength of the covenant of grace by which we have escaped the very power of Satan. The covenant we partake of is the covenant of grace. And by grace, our Father and our Jesus have provided us with everything we need for life and godliness. And they tell us that the only way to apprehend what they have provided for us is to believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Saved, healed, delivered, protected, made whole. Salvation is ours. The last great escape is very much like the Red Sea. We saw that Moses took the people out of Israel. We see that Jesus, a type of Moses, brought people out of sin. <laughs> but there was one last great escape that a lot of the church doesn't even know exists. After the Israelites saw their first great deliverance through the blood of the Passover lamb, they were given instructions on how to safely exit Egypt, which also required divine intervention. So the Israelites obeyed what God had done and then did what God had said. When they obeyed, all of Israel, along with many new Egyptian believers, passed through the Red Sea completely safe on dry ground. It was completely miraculous. This is kind of what happened shortly before AD 70, when all of Jerusalem, including the Jewish temple, was completely and utterly destroyed. Nothing was left. It was a desert for two years. But the Christians, both Jew and Gentile, all did what Jesus told them to do in Matthew 24. Jesus told his disciples that when they saw Jerusalem surrounded by armies, they were to run to the mountains. And we see this in Matthew 24, beginning with verse 15. When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken by the prophet Daniel, stand in the holy place, whosoever reads, let him understand. In other words, whosoever writing this down says, you need to pay attention, <laughs> particularly to this part. <laughs> Then let him which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down 
to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to, to take his clothes. And woe, woe is not good. And woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days. But pray ye that your flight be not in winter, neither on the Sabbath day. For then shall a great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be again. This is one of the things we have to realize is why he's not talking about the end of the world. (laughs) Because he says there are going to be stuff coming after, but this kind of thing will never happen again. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. And they were. The elect was the Jewish people. And if God had not shortened the time of this siege, there wouldn't have been any Jews at all left. When Jesus said that the tribulation that accompanied and led up to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple would be worse than any tribulation that the Jewish people had ever endured before, that includes Egypt and Babylon, (laughs) or would ever, ever happen again, he wasn't kidding. Believers usually have very little understanding of the horrors that the Jewish people underwent. But if you read through Deuteronomy 28, which is all of the curses that come upon the disobedient and obstinate Jew, you will begin to get a very good idea of what they went through. I have a sampling for you, beginning with verse 52. And they shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land. And they shall besiege you in all of your towns throughout all your land, which the Lord Yahweh God has given to you. And you shall eat the fruit of your own womb, Yes, that's what that means. (laughs) The flesh of your sons and your daughters, whom Yahweh God has given you in the siege and in the distress, which your enemy shall distress you. The man who is the most tender and refined among you will begrudge food to his brother, to the wife he embraces, and to the last of his children whom he has left, so that he will not give any of the flesh of his children whom he is eating because he has nothing else left in the siege and in the distress with which your enemy shall distress you in all of your towns. And this is exactly the kind of thing that happened during the Jewish wars with Rome. According to Jewish historian Josephus, who actually just happened to get in their good graces, became one of their generals, (laughs) he has recorded for us what happened at the end for Jerusalem. He says that upon entering their devastation. One of the Roman army's generals said that he actually came upon a woman in the process of eating her child whom she had just roasted. The unbelieving Jews were literally slaughtered and starved to death over a period of about three and a half years. The unbelieving Jews simply refused, just like stubborn monkeys, to let go of their own self-righteousness and their faith in a temple. None of them needed to perish, just like Pharaoh. They chose it by refusing to listen to the voice of God within their own Old Testament scriptures. But for the Christians, something miraculous happened. Another great escape! Bible scholar Adam Clark wrote about this great escape, and he said this, It is very remarkable that not a single Christian perished in the destruction of Jerusalem, though there were many there when Cestius Gallus, 
I'm doing my best, <laughs> invested or surrounded the city. And had he persevered in the siege, he would have rendered himself master of it. But when he unexpectedly, unaccountably raised or stopped the siege, the Christians took the opportunity to escape. <laughs> in other words, God intervened and moved the Roman armies out of the way the same way he moved the water of the Red Sea out of the way. And all the Christians who believed the word of the Lord and did the word of the Lord <laughs> escaped to safety. God didn't wave any magic wands for the Christians. Yes, he demonstrated his power, but he didn't do for them their part. <laughs> they had to believe the word of the Lord and then do the word of the Lord first. Then came another great escape. Yes, Yahweh God is still moving because of the strength of the covenant of grace. But it's faith in his great grace that makes us get up off of our hiney <laughs> and do the word of the Lord. Yahweh God is still as faithful as he has ever been, and he is willing and able to provide us with our own great escape when we need one. So don't be like a stubborn monkey. <laughs> let go of those fears. Let go of those doubts. <laughs> and let the strength of the covenant of grace inspire your faith, because nothing is impossible for him who believes. Most of the Christian church has no idea that what Jesus prophesied in Matthew 24 actually came to pass in AD 70 because it's not written. It's not written in the Bible. We didn't have a prophet writing this all down, but God placed Josephus, a Jew, and basically a traitor, <laughs> in the right place at the right time so he could verify the authenticity of the prophecies of Jesus Christ. And that they have indeed already been fulfilled. One of the things I liked about this message was that I got to see there was a great escape in Israel by the blood of the lamb, and then another escape followed. Jesus is our great escape uh, for all judgment, and you know what? There's always escapes available for us. And then finally, the last great escape, salvation came, and God provided an escape for every single believer. And it was a mixed multitude, just like Egypt. It was mixed with Jews and Gentiles united in the Lord Jesus Christ. God came to change the world, and he really did, through Jesus Christ. Amen? Father God, we thank you for your word, for your truth, for your orchestration. I love seeing how you orchestrate all things all things for our good. Your word tells us you turn all things for good. Not all things are good. Sarah having a child leave her home that she thought was hurt was not good. But God, but God turned all things for good because she had prepared and done all the classes she needed to have children in foster care. She was immediately considered qualified to adopt. That baby was born into Sarah's arms. And we thank you, Father God, that you have shown yourself faithful, that our whole family and all over the world, the testimony is given that our God is a great God. In the midst of sorrow, in the midst of fear, in the midst of doubt, you are still faithful and you turn all things for our good. We thank you, Father God, that you are the great escape artist <laughs> and that you've taken us into yourself. 
that by the blood of the Lamb, we too escape not only judgment, but the very power and presence of evil. We thank you, Father God, that you have by your blood made us sons and daughters of the Most High God. You have made us kings and priests on this earth to bring forth the kingdom of God through our words and through our actions. We thank you, Father God, that you are a talking God, that you love speaking, you love us to hear you. We thank you, Father God, that you speak to us continuously in our thoughts, in your word, in our spirit. You're always ministering the truth of who you are and who we are in you. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.